Dr. Christopher Kelly is a senior research scientist at Google and a neonatal intensive care doctor in London. He founded CKNet whilst at medical school at Cambridge, which was generating £60 million in sales for its clients the year before it was acquired, as well as founding gettingmarried.co.uk, which was acquired by Prozola in 2016. He's also an angel investor, having invested in tech startups such as Deliveroo and Rota.com. We talk about his fascinating winding story, particularly how he was willing to drop it all in pursuit of his passions. We talk about how he was able to build and scale his companies whilst at medical school, and how being a little bit obsessive has paid dividends throughout his career. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, so Chris, I think you've got a super, super interesting story. So would you mind telling me a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well... Thank you very much for having me. Good to start where I am now. I suppose so I like so I work as a clinical research scientist in the health AI group at Google. So that's the artificial intelligence group at Google, um, and work on applying artificial intelligence to healthcare. I'm mostly focusing on radiology and ophthalmology as the two areas I've been working in. And I suppose the nice thing about this job for me is it brings together like lots of different parts. It brings like clinical medicine, like a love of technology, machine learning, research building things and also like a bit of business as well. So it's like a really nice, it kind of suits me really well. And I suppose I also work at St. Thomas's as a sort of senior clinical fellow at on the neonatal intensive care unit. So, so do that as well, like on top of the, the Google job. So just to keep the clinical side going. But in terms of journey, it's been um, a very wiggly route. So I could tell you a bit about that. So I suppose as a child, um, just like very obsessed with sort of electrics and electronics and spent most of my life sort of buried in wires um, sort of making things from like robots to like a dishwasher for my mum and all, all this kind of, sort of random stuff and then and then really wanted a computer and then um, I got caught in the boys toilets actually age six handing over my life savings in the form of a bag of 50p coins uh, to another boy uh, who had a spectrum from his house and the headmaster was very unimpressed about this and we, we both got very told off but anyway that led to actually me getting a computer um, from my next door neighbor who worked for Xerox. It's about seven at this point. And, and he showed me basic this programming language and it sort of kicked off this love of coding. And from then on, just started making lots of things on the computer. I had a, a fictitious software house called Kelly Software Productions. I had like the logos all around my bedroom. Um, I actually made one called What's Up Doc, which, is a, which was from this um, book, a family medicine book we had at home. It had like an algorithm for should your chest pain go to hospital or not? And it sort of asked you questions and you could say yes or no. And it sort of told you. Uh, yeah, there's like like some some of the, the chatbots around today. Yeah, and so like I, I guess then when I was at school, then I really wanted to make a website. It's like the internet was kicking off. I was like, I need to make a website. Um, and my English teacher gave us an essay um, in the Yorkshire dialect. So you know, so writing it in like the phonetics when you're writing the speech. So I actually made a program to do this, um, which sort of like so you type in a, a phrase and it would write it out sort of in the phonetic how you would say it as a Yorkshire person with all that kind of Yorkshire vocab. And then so, well, maybe this maybe this would be my good first website. So um, added a few more. So I did um, Scouse, Scottish, Brummy, Cockney, um, Irish, Geordie, Posh, and Ali G, important one at the time, uh, and put this on a website called woohoo.co.uk. Uh, so like hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of life, age 14 or 15, going through like dictionaries and poems and books, just to get all the vocab. Um, and it became like oddly popular. About sort of half a million people a month were going to this website. Wow. Uh, it got in, I think, almost every national newspaper, most of the magazines. And it was just a really weird experience having sort of all these people using the thing you'd made. It, like it was a real like adrenaline thing for me. And I got contacted by these ad networks saying, can we put adverts on your website? 
So I put some adverts on. And before you knew it, they were actually making us a couple of thousand pounds per month versus, you know, as, a, wow. as a secondary school student. Um, and it just like sort of opened my mind to like what the internet can do. I guess at the time, the internet was quite static. There wasn't much dynamic stuff. So it was a little bit different. But it definitely led me to think, you know, if you focus on doing what you're interested in, like things like money will probably follow if you, if you do it all right. Even like a stupid website that translates text into dialects. But yeah, and then when it came to university, I was sort of really torn between like engineering and medicine. And I went to open days for both. And in the end, did like work experience in medicine. I thought, ah, oh, this is really, really good. And so, yeah, applied to medicine, went to Cambridge and went to St. John's College in Cambridge and had a really good time. So, but the trouble was I got there and then, you know, the website was still going on and I was still like really interested in ads and kind of how you can get people to buy things online or how to find the right people to buy the right things online. So in my first term of medicine, sort of, should really have been focusing on the medicine, but started the first startup. And this was like an ads company. So it was, I suppose it was inspired by the website. The website had originally been paid cost per thousand views of these, um, these adverts on the website. It then went to cost per click. So you actually had to click on it to get paid. And then it went to cost per sale. So um, you actually had to buy something. And as you can imagine, you know, if, you, um, if you're going to a dialect translating website, you don't really want to buy anything. And so the revenue dropped right off in my first term. And so I then I thought, well, how do I find people who want to buy the things that people are advertising for? And at this point, search engines were just adding, they were just starting to have advertising on the websites. Um, on, you know, uh, Google Ads had launched a, a two to three years earlier. And so, so I think, well, let's look at finding people on search engines and sending them to the right place to where they want to buy stuff. Um, and so this is what the company did. So we paid per click. The company paid itself per click to send traffic to our advertisers. And they would pay us if the customer made a sale. So for example, like BAA would pay us, I don't know, 30 pounds if we got a customer to sign up. And we would just send the, send the clicks. And the system in between worked out the value of each keyword, each click. So you knew that a cost on, a click on a breakdown cover cost 20p. And if 10 people signed up after, if, if it took 10 people to click before you got a sign up, it was, two, it, was, it was two pounds for that sale. You had a 28 pound profit. And so this was this, this roller coaster of a journey that began trying to run this startup while doing the first year of, of university. And it had, you know, uh, the pretty much went bankrupt on the day before my first year exams, which were, which were not good. And actually, I failed the vast majority of them, which wasn't good. <laughs> I was in a very stressed state. But um, ultimately, it sort of gained some momentum. And um, by the end of undergraduate, I had about, I had about 25 customers, including like Apple, Sky, Jessup, Empower, British Gas 3. Um, Lots of quite cool customers. And yeah, this was like the beginning of a kind of just a fascination with like the internet and how, how the whole thing works. And so I became really interested by companies and finance, wanted to learn more. All my friends at uni were going off to work for banks. And I felt like a bit sort of, oh, well, maybe I should do this too. Um, and so I applied to um, the investment banks in London for a job. And my long suffering director of studies, it's called Professor Kimbeth. She, she sort of encouraged me to do what I was interested in. And so I actually left medicine after my third year to go and be an equity analyst at UBS. It was like a big, big thing. We moved to London, um, stayed with a friend near the office. And yeah, it was a really interesting time. Sort of, um, I was the only medic I think that they'd had on their um, investment banking program before. I knew nothing about anything other than what I'd learned from the company. And this, we spent the most of the time learning how to sort of value companies, how to do a profit and loss statement, balance sheet, cash flow, company modeling. I did. I actually ended up doing the pharmaceutical companies, so kind of the medical thing was useful. And I was in a team of um, people who'd done medicine or, bio, or bio, um, 
biochemistry or it was a really fascinating time um but i did discover i didn't like um getting to work for 6 a.m which was the requirement and i was also running the ads company at the night uh, in the night at this time so getting out really early for the banking and then going home and running the company at, in the evening which was not sustainable and i think ultimately just wanted to build things myself because in banking you're basically um advising others or commenting on others or it wasn't i wanted to be there myself i think so actually i asked to go back to cambridge and this same director of studies very kindly uh, welcomed me back and um about a year about a year or so after that that little adventure started um i went back to clinical school which was really good so i actually had a bit of renewed vigor by this point i think all, everyone else at university was in their fourth year instead of them you know getting a little bit tired of everything and all their friends had left and i was there with this renewed vigor having seen how the real world worked and really appreciating being a student again and uh, just really enjoyed the whole clinical school experience and really enjoyed the practical medicine as opposed to the sort of academic side of it and so yeah I continued running the company i guess in my penultimate year then got an offer to for, from someone to buy the company to acquire it which is quite exciting so by by now we had about a team of 5 um and it was it was going quite well and this sort of queued 3 months of very stressful due diligence as this company tried to work out what ours was like um i was trying to do a gp rotation at the time and i just had a knee operation so it wasn't going it was it wasn't wasn't a great time but it all did go well in the end and um they acquired the company in 2008 so quite a long time ago now and i stayed working for it or involved at least for another year and a half or so and so yeah and i think from that just learned that you know building things is fun you know you can you can work every day on a little bit of it each day and when you look back you built this thing that's much bigger than you could achieve in one day. It's like a really nice sort of feeling when you look back. Same as research, actually. Um, and also, you know, I was genuinely interested in ads and really passionate about it. So, like, it didn't really feel like work. It was, just, I was just really driven. Just, I was just really interested in it. And yeah, I think I think that was something I, was, I thought right for the future. I need to be passionate about things. The only thing that I didn't like was this quarterly VAT returns, which are the most awful part of the whole thing. And I actually still have it in my calendar now deadline so i kind of kind of appreciate not doing it so that's good but yeah so but through all this um definitely caught the bug of startups now i'm doing medicine again and then some of my friends started getting married <laughs> and one of them asked me to do a web website for their wedding and this led to like the next silly venture which uh sounds a bit daft when you when you when you look back on it but it was like a a website called gettingmarried.co.uk and it's a website where you can create a website for your wedding so if you're getting married you can put all your your gift list and your rsvps and a bit about you and your photographs and a map of everything um and yeah that's a gain that, that's that's a gain traction too actually um and, you know in the end it was a team of about five of us um about one in 12 people getting married in the uk used it for their wedding and it, it we actually got another offer to to buy it um in 2018, I think it was, um, from a competitor, well, not a competitor, a, a giftless company who was, um, you know, it was a great synergy between the two. So we had lots of people signing up for their weddings and they wanted people to use it for their gift list. And it was the obvious, the obvious thing for them to buy it. And so, um, so that was great. It, it, I think the thing from this I learned was that I wasn't really that passionate about weddings compared to ads. And I think I realized that as time went on, it wasn't the thing that I really loved and it did feel I, I find it harder to be really motivated about it. And I think this is good. I think I decided at that point that from now on, things had to involve health and they had to involve technology. And I would try and restrict myself to these two because that's actually where I really wanted to work and, and tried not to get distracted by 
um, just you know, like ideas that come up along the way. I guess another side effect was um, that all my friends, because uh, I'd got involved in internet stuff, they, whenever a friend had another friend who was doing something on the internet, they sort of said, oh, you should meet Chris, he likes the internet. Um, and so I uh, ended up meeting other people doing um, interesting companies as well. And that, that sort of led to the idea of engine investing, which I hadn't really heard of before. Um, and it led to about doing I think almost 20 angel investments over the next 10, 15 years, which has, again, had like spawned a whole set of really fascinating journeys on living vicariously through others. Many of them have not gone so well. Uh, some of them have gone quite well. Um, and it just highlights you know, the startup world is really hard, but also really exciting. And you know, if it goes well, it's just a really, really exciting ride. Um, but I've you know, really enjoyed that side of things too. And then back to medicine. So uh, ultimately, so focusing back on medicine, um, specialised in paediatrics, um, got an academic clinical fellow job, which gives you nine months of research, and ended up at um, the Evelina at St Thomas's, in this amazing biomedical engineering department at King's College London, um, working on baby brain MRI. This is like an amazing department. Actually, it's actually a great place to work. It was like a small number of doctors, surrounded by these really sort of bright, clever engineers, computer scientists, um, physicists, who were sort of working to make MRI work better for, for newborn babies and fetal, fetal, um, fetal fetuses. And I just really enjoyed this. It felt like the dots were joining up. Here's like some engineering, some medicine, a bit of research, you know, all coming together. Um, and ended up doing a PhD there then at King's College London um, in medical imaging. And it was all looking at how the brains of babies with um, congenital heart disease develop. Um, and had a, just a really enjoyable three years doing that with a really great team at King's. And it sort of led to this fascination in machine learning. So it was like in about 2015, I think, I was getting quite excited by what it could do. And I met this very amazing person called Tony Young. I don't know if you come across him. He's a national clinical director for innovation in the NHS. And he invited a bunch of us to go to San Diego on this conference called Exponential Medicine um, in 2015. We met some really interesting people. Um, sort of opened my mind to like med, med tech. Um, and actually TensorFlow was launched by Google during this conference, and everyone was very excited. And, and when we got home, we started trying to see how, you know, could I run, could I train some models to try and predict things from different images that I was using in my PhD? And it got all very exciting, really you know, amazed at how well it worked. Sort of like, wow, this, this technology has quite a lot of potential. And I, from then I sort of remember waking up in the middle of the night in a, in a bit of a sweat that I wasn't working on AI and health. This, is just, this became the new, the new obsession, I suppose. And I was hunting in Kings for, expertise in this area and actually oddly it was still quite early and there wasn't much expertise and I spoke to one of the co-founders of DeepMind after a talk I went to and that sort of led to the, the process of recruitment I ended up um, joining in 2018 which was pretty lucky I'd say and this for me was a bit of a dream like everybody I'd followed on Twitter seemed to work there and you know suddenly you were going to like lots of amazing talks and it's a great environment and a great culture of just this new era of, med of well, I guess computer science, but also linked in with medicine. I got involved in lots of interesting work. So um, ophthalmology stuff with Moorfields and Pierce Keen, who you've had on the podcast before, and Joe Ledson. Um, and like radiology work, um, like our project to detect breast cancer in mammography images, which has been the thing that's been, I've been working on for the last year or so. Well, actually more than that now, working on for the last few years. And so, yeah, so, so that's where I am now, I suppose. Um, and I was just thinking, like, what, what, um, what things are, are sort of, like, most useful along that journey? And I, I don't know if you watched this Steve Jobs commencement speech from 
2005, and he talks, it's a, it's a commencement address, you know, to graduation. He talks about some like stories of his, but one of the ones that really um, uh, struck a chord to me was about like, the dots of life, so joining up later. You know, you can't join the dots looking forwards, you can only join them looking backwards. And I suppose if you think about all these um, slightly random things ended up doing, I think that talk, it's actually 2005, I think, gave me the confidence to do these slightly random jumps. It was like the confidence that one day it would come together. And I think they sort of have a little bit in this in the, the, the current jobs at Google, which is uh, exciting, I suppose. Whenever you did these kind of side projects, fun projects that ended up turning into successful kind of ventures. So you mentioned the, the website with the accents, the ad stuff, the getting married website. You kind of just end each story with, uh, oh, yeah, and then it just took off and then it goes somewhere. But like, what, what was it, do you think, that made these? Were there any common threads that made these things turn up, to, like kick off? Was there anything specific you were doing? I think, I think, um, I think the first thing is luck. There's a huge amount of luck. You said the right place at the right time. You know, the ads was just taking off. The internet was just taking off for the first one. Uh, um, I think that's a, just a large part of it, to be honest. I think the other thing is just being a little bit obsessive and really, you know, for the, for the, for the first website at school, I did email like every editor of every newspaper telling them why they should write a little article about this website. I mean, you know, with hindsight, it's a bit, uh, yeah, not sure, I, not sure I would do that now, but it's, that's one thing, or you know, or the or the um, the ads company. You know, it was it was like thousands of hours of work and lots of late nights, and and also it wasn't all good. I mean, I said, I think I mentioned the um, the uh, ads company the day before my anatomy exams, almost going bankrupt. You know, it really did. The, I only had one customer at the beginning, and they went bankrupt, leaving me with this huge debt. That I was like, gosh, you know, things have gone so well up until this point. And now I'm down an absolute mon monstrous amount of money, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, which was you know, for me a huge amount as a as a first year student. And you know, just like okay, I've got to, I've got to just uh, start again, really. And and just from then on, you, know, you just learn something each time. So that time, was, well, I'm not going to work with small companies now. Now I'm going to try and work with big ones that won't go bankrupt. So like aiming for like uh, big companies I've heard of rather than small companies I haven't. And you know, just and then just chipping away at that sort of debt I'd incurred. Um, I think I think ultimately just really enjoying what you're doing. Again, trawling through those databases of dialects, trying to find Yorkshire words. It's not something you would have necessarily done if you weren't really interested in it, and it wasn't something you were doing for money. So I think maybe it's about just doing something you love. Sometimes it feels like in the medical world, people turn their noses up at people making money or. Um, it feels like if you do a venture, especially if it's very medicine related, people feel like it's almost unethical for you to charge or for you to do things like that. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really um, good observation, actually. I, and I feel the same, actually, which is ironic, isn't it? I, I think it's actually, it's one of the challenges of health, actually, in the UK. I don't think it necessarily applies to other countries. I think in the US, you know, if you're doing a healthcare company, people are fine with it. It's just where we've got used to this NHS system which is fantastic and we're all very much uh we're very all very grateful for the nhs but it has led to a thing where people do um are very suspicious of people who are trying to make a business in healthcare i think and i don't know really what the what the solution is to that to be honest i mean if we want to have innovation in healthcare then i think we need to have people building companies in healthcare as well I and mean, obviously there can be innovation within the nhs and that is brilliant um, 
we need to we need to encourage that, of course. It's really hard though, because initiatives is often one of the hardest places to change. I mean, I, I'm sure you've got examples too, but you know, in the first year I tried to change the the, the drawers for the cannula cannulation trolley just to make it a little bit more sequential. So you just pick them out as you wanted them rather than hunting around the stock room for you know, the, the opposition to that was immense. Uh, you know, like to the point where you think, well, this is actually really insignificant. Why, why would I, how would I ever manage to do something more meaningful uh, in, in healthcare if this, if this is so hard? And I guess companies are um, a good way of being really nimble because then you, you can just do what you want and, you know, um, you can move fast and um, you, aren't, you aren't held back by legacy, I suppose. Because I would love to see a, a really vibrant ecosystem of healthcare companies in the UK. And I hope we can get there. And I th actually think that the culture has changed a little bit too. I think people do admire people who are trying to make a difference. And, you know, got lots of friends who are building companies in healthcare now and in the UK as well. And I think I definitely get the feeling like people admire them now much more than they might have done, say, 10 years ago. Another statement you made was that you were just really passionate about ads and I think specifically internet ads. And that sounds like a bit of a strange statement. So is there anything in particular? Is it, you know, the psychology? Is it the thrill of people being interested in what you're making? Like what, what is it about ads that you kind of found interesting? <laughs> it, was, it does sound stupid, doesn't it? Um, I think the thing that was really cool about it was never, never before had there been this system that could filter people according to what they wanted. So if you imagine like a newspaper, you open the page and there's an advert for a car. But you know, I have a car, I don't need a car. So that's like a wasted ad for me, isn't it? That was just a wasted impression of an ad. You know, whereas on like a search engine, you type in breakdown cover, the, the subset of people that type that in, they actually are probably interested in breakdown cover. And if they then type in the AA or something, they're pretty much, they're pretty much trying to get the AA website and they want to buy some breakdown cover. There's a kind of never before in the sort of history of the world, really, apart from the yellow pages, I suppose, has that really been possible at such scale? I just found that really fascinating that you could, you could start going into the psychology of you know, what keywords are people looking for information? What keywords are people interested in, interested in buying things? What's, how do the combinations of them fit together? Like, what's the buying funnel? Like, what do you type when you're interested in, you know, digital cameras? You type that in, maybe you get a, you're interested in reviews at that point. And then you're like, I actually Sony digital cameras. I want to buy a Sony one. And then you're a bit, bit more narrow. And then you're like, actually, I want the Sony A7, something, something, something. At that point, you really want to buy. And it's just, this, this whole field was like, just completely new. And it was just really interesting place to just to experiment, really. I don't know if this is 100% true, but I think I came across it somewhere. That um, Have you heard of this, that apparently randomized controlled trials came from newspapers and marketers? Have you heard of this? No, but that may well be true. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so I, I heard that in the 1870s, I think it was, that newspapers started experimenting with different ads. So if you had two different styles of ads for the same thing, you would run half of your newspapers with one style of ad and the other half with the other style and then see which one performed better or which one got the most purchases. And that's where randomized controlled trials came from. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it does seem like there's a lot of interesting innovation that happens in marketing and ads that you can definitely cross over to other yeah, fields yeah. as well. I mean, A-B testing is like a, a core part of web design and, you know, and ads as well, actually. You know, um, like, actually, and like, like a silly example of this is, one of the first things I was doing back in the first year was mobile phone contracts and trying to, you know, and I took out adverts in like national papers, I actually made the adverts on, I don't know, one of like, you know, some desktop publishing thing and then sent it off and paid about a thousand or two thousand pounds to have them in placed. And then with my phone number, then if someone signed up, you got paid some money for each contract. 
And I tried all sorts of designs. And I was, at, that's actually one, one fascinating thing. I was trying like one I thought looked really classy, like a really nice ad, you know, Helvetica everywhere, but beautiful, really, really, really nice. And I remember thinking I, I got like two sales. So, you know, a huge loss. I was like, oh. And then, and then I tried another one, but with like, do you remember that Microsoft Word impact font? Like a really kind of nasty, um, kind of, not nasty, but like not very tasteful, bit in your face. I think it had summer scorchers at the top. You know, it was, it, and, and you know, that was one of the best ads. And it's just so funny how it's not necessarily that the, um, you know, not necessarily that the most beautiful looking ad is the best one. Like it's something that catches your eye and makes you look at it and dig into a bit more. It's like not intuitive necessarily. So you need A-B tests to try and find out. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you'd never tried that, you would never find out. So then, then you can go down that route of, of varying that different design a little bit more. Another thing when you were speaking about some of the research you do nowadays is that, you know, some of the fields I think you were saying that you work in or that are particularly uh, big in medical AI or ophthalmology, uh, breast cancer, radiology, these kinds of fields are ones that I see a lot popping up as well. Is there a particular reason why there's a lot of focus and a lot of research into these areas and maybe a few others like these and then the other areas don't get as much attention? Yeah, I think when people start looking at where they should focus on, they look for big problems with quite standardized inputs. So if you think about like screening programs are a great place to start because they tend to take standardized images or collect standardized information and they're done at a population scale and they have, they have potential to impact large numbers of people. So like, hey, you know, the AI technologies, they're not like humans. They can't necessarily deal with you know, random things, you know, very, very small, unexpected things, the, the very difficult, complex case. You know, that is all about pattern recognition and you need you need like plenty of training data to be able to learn what to do in each situation. And so um, if you're, you know, screening is ideal because you've got you know, large numbers of um, people to learn from. The conditions are generally quite sort of, um, there's only a certain number of things that it could be. It's quite well, it's quite well defined. It's, it follows guidelines. Um, and so, you know, breast cancer screening is a good one, a good example where there's you know, very strict quality control measures that are applied to every image that's taken. That's very good for machine learning or um, you know, diabetic retinopathy screening. There's very good quality guidelines. And so these make quite good projects for machine learning because you can, you can do quite robust training and testing. If you think about, say, walking into a GP practice and you know, with a problem, it's so much harder to capture that. You know, you know, a, lot the, a lot of the information is how the person walks in and sits down and you know, what's their affect like and... Do they make eye contact and what do they say? And is there something they're not saying that they really want to say, but they need an in that you have to provide by asking the right question? These things are really hard. And you know, I think that the era of machine learning, machine learning doing that is quite a long way off. Um, whereas quite standardized image capture is probably the best place to start and the, the least likely place to sort of cause damage within, a, within a, um, an established screening setup. In, so I did a year of uh, business school slash management. And one of the concepts that was kind of taught, which I know you would have come across, is the difference between when you start a project going for a problem-focused approach versus a solution-focused approach. So the, the first one's self-explanatory, but the second one is more like, I've got this great technology, where can I use it? Yeah. It sounds like in medical AI, maybe the, the current focus is probably, maybe as it's a more immature, the focus is solution-focused, thinking, where can we apply this? What kind of exciting things do you see coming in the next sort of decade? Do you think there are any kind of other areas where we're going to see a massive explosion? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Like, um, 
the first exploration of medical AI has definitely felt like, wow, we have this great tool. How can we use it? Oh, here's a good, here's a good, here's a good uh, area. Here's another area. Here's another area. And then you publish, you know, there, there are thousands of publications of medical AI. And I don't suppose that many of them have actually been used in patient care, really, because when you come down to it, it just hasn't been designed with the kind of um, clinician-centered approach that probably it needed. And so I suspect that the next round will be hopefully much more clinician-driven. I, I, know, um, I know you talked with Pierce Keen about this a little bit, like the trying to find a cohort of clinicians who are, who are really interested in machine learning, who understand, don't have to understand everything about it, but understand like the basics and the, the, the concepts that underlie the whole thing, that they can then drive the projects and say, I've got this problem. I think this problem is really amenable to machine learning. Um, let's like, let's like map it out really carefully. Let's think about what it would have to do. Where could it go wrong? What are the sort of, what are the unexpected things that we're going to come up against? And then pulling in the computer scientists to help them work on that project and doing it in that way. Where probably like 95% of the, of the project will be thinking about the problem, what the data look like, how do I get the right data set? How do I make sure it's sort of fair and representative and isn't going to cause harm through some thing we haven't thought about? And then testing it in a, in a way that actually makes sense for the healthcare system. So you know, what, if it's a screening thing, what does the screening program actually want? How do they measure their existing clinicians? Like what metrics do they use? Like really thinking about all of these things and then running that project. And hopefully that work will be much more translatable into clinical practice than some of the papers, which you know, can often be like, oh, we've, we've just done this, we've just solved this problem. But when you dig into it, you haven't really. And you think it's, you've made some shortcut that actually isn't possible in the real world. And it's crucial to the translation. I suppose, I think we're all becoming a bit more aware of that now. And I think you can see the quality of publications improving. But I feel like that's the most exciting thing. I think we're still at that very early stage, actually, of machine learning and health. But I, I can't imagine how it won't be in 30 years time that it's like quite ubiquitous. And we're not talking about it quite so much anymore. And it, and it is just a thing that has improved healthcare. But I think we've got quite an interesting decade or two to come in between where we are now and where we will be then. One of my thoughts, if I had, you know, such a cool portfolio career like yourself, where I was, you know, doing so many cool different things, is that at some point I might have the thought that, um, so I'm not doing medicine full time. So I've kind of sacrificed a little bit about what I could achieve here. I might be, you know, a consultant specialist now, um, a big hotshot in the hospital, but then on the side of my work at Google, then I've not been able to go full hardcore into that. And then angel investing side projects, whatever else, do you ever get that feeling where you think, oh, like I should have just stuck to one thing and become an, you know, a world leader expert in that rather than spreading myself? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I get that all the time. <laughs> um, I suppose, yes, I mean, most of my friends are, you know, are or about to be consultants now. And I, you know, I definitely see that everyone else is plowing ahead in their medical career. Um, you know, I don't actually... When you really think about it, though, I actually have enjoyed the journey so far. And I think it is about the journey. I think you can rush to becoming the consultant and sort of not really enjoy it along the way. And I have really enjoyed it along the way, and I continue to enjoy it. And I don't think it really matters where you end up. And so I, I've tried not to focus on that too much. So I think really, yeah, focusing on the journey, um, I, I actually find um, the medical side of it most difficult because, of course, we've sort of We've planned our lives around being doctors, haven't we, from a, quite an early age as starting medical school and whatever. It's quite hard to let go of that, actually. Medicine has a very strong um, pull on us, I think. 
once you've once you've trained. And I I definitely feel that quite strongly. However, I you know a little bit like public health, you sort of think, well, maybe you know if if you can do a really good job of the the technology side, maybe you can actually have a really large impact on the patients, even if you're not directly signaling day to day through the clinical work. And that's sort of the, maybe the thing that keeps me going. One of the questions I had relating to coding is, you know, say you're a medic and you're very similar to yourself in the sense that you have all these ideas, you're either entrepreneurial or you're research orientated. You want to make a difference beyond the kind of clinical impact that you're going to have directly. Um, the question is, you know, for some of some people, it'll come very naturally to learn how to code, to be interested in these things, to start picking those up yourself. And maybe, let's maybe exclude that category. But say you're in the camp of people who could learn how to with enough focused effort, but it doesn't come naturally to you. My question is, is it worth learning how to code? Because my, of course, it would be a good skill to develop, but then A, there's the opportunity cost of spending that much time doing that. And B, it looks to me as if a lot of your code will never really be production ready or used in a product. Like it seems like you would have a team doing that in any kind of significant project. So it just seems like something that is cool, but it might not be that useful. What What are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think everyone should try and learn to code if they can. I don't. Know, I think not just medics. Everybody. I think it is a valuable skill, and it does open up opportunities. You know, if you say, "Oh, actually, I can actually, I could probably just do that." Actually, suddenly you'll get the chance to do something you wouldn't otherwise get the chance to do. I think also you should never underestimate the power of a prototype, even if it's not particularly good. So, so like a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the companies in the past, you know, maybe would write the first pass at something which just about worked, and then someone much better would come and write something that was actually much more production ready. And I think the same is probably true. You know, if you're working on a project and you just want to get something started, what a, what a great um, what a great skill if you can just do that. And I, I know it is it is hard to get started. Um, but there are some great ways to learn, and I just think that if you, I think that if you if you try, you probably actually will quite enjoy it. It is quite fun, <laughs> um, and I think the the opportunity to speak the language as well of people who do this as their full time job is also quite valuable. When you're working with engineers or um, or scientists, even in the hospital, as a um, if you if you're a consultant and you're working with the the lab or something on a project, if you're able just to do a bit of an analysis, analysis yourself, or I think it does change the environment a little bit and it allows you to work much better with them as colleagues because you understand you don't suggest things that are quite so quite so silly because you kind of know that that won't work even if you can't do it yourself you can understand the the ways of doing things i think that is valuable so i would i would uh i would encourage everyone to have a go and if you really don't like it after trying then fine but i think it's worth trying and if you were kind of speaking to either a medical student someone who's medical but that has a fair amount of time on their hands and, you know, they want to work on loads of cool stuff as well. Would you have any recommendations for them on like what they should be learning, what they should be working on? Like, what should they be spending their spare time doing? Are there any particular things that have been really beneficial for you to work on? I think I would just be looking at um, like keeping being very aware of everything going on around you and just hunting for what interests you. And then just, just taking the time to learn more about it and thinking like, you know, how might this change medicine in the future? Or how could this be improved? Or, you know, how could I be part of this journey like in the future and just really like latching onto someone who's already working in that field and learning more from them. I think that's what I'd be trying to do mostly because there are loads of things you could be working on. I mean, I guess there are, the list is sort of much like it was 10 years ago, but I guess like in genomics and machine learning and personalized care. And, um, but I think maybe just hunting for what interests you, um, being willing to take risks, asking for an UP, you know, an out-of-program experience. You know, I think people often don't do it. They think, oh, I won't get it or it won't, won't look very good. 
I would just take that, you know, just ask people for help. And I think you'll be surprised that they often do respond really well. Have there been any habits or ways of approaching things that have been helpful in your career? Yeah, I think so. I guess, I guess they were, I think we spoke about some of them already. I think it's just about just being quite an interested person in lots of different things and going quite deep into something and getting maybe a little bit obsessive about things at times. I think that's probably one characteristic. And maybe enjoying taking some calculated risks, you know, just not being too scared to change track and just sort of having the belief that things will be okay. I think that's, a, that's quite an important thing. I think also, like we just spoke about, not being in a huge rush to get anywhere, like just trying to enjoy the journey and just, you know, really enjoying it as you go along. And also, uh, one I think is quite funny, but, you know, just not being afraid to email people, you know, and just um, if, you, if you admire someone, just send them a message saying, oh, I just think that's really good. You know, I really appreciated that, you know, and almost not necessarily asking for anything, but just everyone loves receiving an email like that. And if you genuinely think it, you should probably just say it. And I've always been surprised at the, um, you know, the response that you get from people and people you think would never reply actually often do reply and sometimes you at least like a really nice friendship or something and also just trying to be a nice person and I think trying to be a good person to work with I think that's just something I try and do Uh, I think everyone tries don't they but it does make a big difference. Have there been any books that you found particularly helpful or any other kind of resource as well would there be anything you would recommend people to look into? Uh, Yeah books I I was trying to think what what interesting books Um, there was actually one, one recommendation, again, by Pierce. He's come up a few times in this, in this podcast. Is one called Creativity Inc. I don't know if you read that by Ed Catmull. And it's, about, it's written by one of the co-founders of Pixar. And it's just a really interesting insight into Pixar from the early days and how you create a culture of creativity that really leads people to do good work. Because they made these really groundbreaking movies. And, and I, reading it, did get quite a lot of sort of read across into, you know, DeepMind and Google and the ways that they were setting up their culture as well. It's a bit very similar. So I, I've often thought about that book over the last few years. Um, and there's another one called Drive by Daniel Pink, like one of the few books that has like really challenged my underlying assumptions about what motivates someone. And it talks about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And it's just really interesting. I remember reading it on a holiday and telling my wife sort of page by page uh, what's going on in this book much to her sort of surprise but it, you know, it was a, just a really good book I recommend that to anyone and I guess I guess one of the things that really um, helped me was this course by Andrew Ng, Ng who um, it's a course on machine learning it's on Coursera it's quite old now but it really covers the basics well like the, like, like, like the basics that you would have learned if you were doing computer science and I often think that the things I learned in that course are just quite useful in general life. But I guess I'm in a particular niche of life. But if you were interested in this kind of work, I think that's a good starting point for someone who's a, maybe a clinician without a formal background at NL, but an interest in computers. It's a, good, it's a good place to start. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.